Okay, so I have a question while watching this film. Did any, does anyone have like a wild holiday party story? Because I've only ever been to one. One time after a holiday party, I remember walking down 6th Avenue with a glass of whiskey, like a glass of whiskey. And one of my coworkers was like, did you take that from the bar? And I said, what? No. And I threw it on the ground. And it shattered? <laughs> and it shattered. Then we went to the office. That's my wild holiday party story. Damn. Did you get a, did you get arrested, dude? No, I don't know. I don't even Dude, that's hard. <laughs> I don't even know why I was drinking a glass of whiskey. That's not my that's not my style. What's your yeah. Do you have a holiday drink that you go for? Oh, eggnog all the way. That's so funny. <laughs> if it was a if it was, if it was a big thick glass of nog, the story would track, but it was a glass of whiskey chaotically. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh well, well, Tavis knows the story. Well, I was only told it secondhand or third hand or whatever, but at our former place of business, my former place of business, apparently a lot of people would hook up in different rooms or offices around the building and just things had to get shut down. That's not abnormal at all, but when I actually went to the holiday party, it felt like everyone was so tame except extremely drunk. I, I, I feel like it got raunchy towards the end. Well, I, I do have a story that I'll tell you guys later. But yeah, it I mean, it, it definitely wasn't good for a lot of people. <laughs> a lot of adults um, being adults, I suppose. <laughs> Go on, Michelle. I feel like that's so Mad Men. Like, it's like crazy to me that people still do that. I don't work in corporate America, so I feel like maybe the vibes are different. I do work in education, and so the teachers tend to go off because they need to because their jobs are so insane and so like they like they tend to like really get drunk but and i think stuff happens but like to in your place of work like isn't that just like anxiety yeah, our, inducing our like, parties just, have like, always been elsewhere but apparently they used to have them in the office and they sound wild like they'd be like oh yeah so-and-so would fall asleep under their desk and then wake up at midnight and start rallying again so, Whoa. That sounds, listen, if I were if I were single and I knew that I didn't do like a drunk me didn't do anything and completely embarrassing, I would go as hard as I possibly can because nothing nothing better than being in your twenties or thirties for that matter and having an open bar and you're around people that you may actually like uh, for free. So if your job is on the line, I'm thinking about our place of business as a club. That's the most hilarious part. <laughs> no, exactly. No, but that's the fun part is that it's usually not. It's usually this place that's so stuffy. And on, on this one particular day, it becomes something relatively lively. I don't if know. you're around people that who, you like, it's great. As someone who's usually drunk at work, there's no difference. Absolutely gone off the nog. Every day of the month of December. <laughs> I love the idea of you being um, drunk on nog year round. <laughs> Is there a place you can get eggnog year-round? Like, surely there is, but... Oh, I don't know, does Trader Joe's have it in the back? You make it, right? Yeah. I don't know how you make eggnog. Eggnog makes me want to throw up when I think, well, I'm making it from home. Yeah, isn't that, like, a thing people do, like, every year? They, like, have their, like, eggnog brewing or something? I'll take a carton of nog. <laughs> there used to be a, there used to be eggnog, eggnog that used to come in a can, kind of like juicy juice. So you would crack open your old school uh, oh can God. opener to, yeah, it was it was delicious. Oh, I was thinking was like, a, like a no, like a, like a, I just I just googled eggnog. It says eggnog, historically also known as milk punch. <laughs> All right, so Dan loves milk punch. <laughs> 
Yeah, Dan, Dan loves milk He also punch. screams milk punch when he punches people. Which is <laughs> the odd thing to do, Dan. Yeah, no, because I know I'm going to be lactose intolerant in a couple of years. So I'm getting it while the game. Yeah, abs- absolutely getting the time. Wait, rewind this? Why are you going to be? What, what's going Everyone on? Everyone eventually get lactose intolerant? A lot of people do. I think a lot of people do. My brother is currently, so I'm like, I've, I'm only a couple years behind him. I refuse. I refuse to think that that will ever happen to me. I love my dairy <laughs> with a passion. Well, only time will tell, Trey. I mean, you can love it, but you gotta, you gotta you love the, the, the consequences as well. Well, they make pills for that. Yeah. Like, like this actually sounds like a nightmare for me. <laughs> I will never be able to eat cereal. It's full fat gloriness. Oh, gosh. Or oh, full lactose, anyway. Cereal All right, guys, should we talk about this damn movie? Hey, no one drank eggnog in this movie. I don't think that counts as a Christmas movie, then. I beg to differ. <laughs> yeah, it, it doesn't fit your brief. Anyways, <laughs> listen, this is Required Watching, where you watch the essential films from the list of cinematic influencers and look at them through the lens of learning about filmmaking and how to move forward. My name is Trey Epps. My name is Michelle Chan Bennett. I'm Danny Taverner. I'm Tavis Northam. Uh, listen, and today we are talking about the And this is Milk Punch. <laughs> from the lens. <laughs> sorry, 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 sorry. Continue, Trey. Through the lens of the no, bottom it, of a glass. <laughs> of a the, glass of mug. A I want to know more about your eggnog stories, Dan. Yeah, we'll, we'll do a separate episode on that one. Listen, we're talking about Die Hard, a 1998 action classic about an NYPD officer who tries to save his wife and several others taken for hostage by German terrorists during a Christmas party at Nakatomi Plaza in Los Angeles. Let me ask you guys. Dan, I know your answer, but have you guys seen this before? No. Yes. No? No way. This, and Dan hasn't seen it either. I, right? I have saw it. I watched like the first... I watched it up until the uh, rocket launcher. <laughs> and so, but, but when did you watch that first bit? <laughs> uh, like a month or two ago. Okay, I... I'm thoroughly curious about why you guys haven't seen this movie. Like, is there like is there a reason? Because I, I feel like I feel like for me, my personal experience is I haven't gone a, a long time talking about action movies specifically without hearing about Die Hard, let alone watching anything without hearing about Die Hard. Like, if anything had relative action in it, Die Hard was mentioned. But I, like, do you guys share that experience of like hearing about it, just no interest in it, or what? Oh no, there's definitely interest. It sounds like it's right up my alley. I think it's just one of those movies that is so every, it's everywhere always that I was like, oh, I'm, I'll watch it eventually. I think it's like become the way that it's like presented to me in the zeitgeist is that like it's it's beloved by like by characters and comedies and stuff that like are to, are their characters are like toxically masculine and then. They're like, you know, like, and it's like always sunny vibes, you know what I mean? Where they just like love it. And like, it's like people loving Scarface almost, you know what I mean? And so I, right. And so I always just thought it was like this weird, like dumb movie that wasn't actually a good movie that just people who like fucking love action and like Bruce and like love cowboy attitudes, you know what I mean? Loved. So I was kind of just like, I think I will find this funny. Like if I watch it. You know what I mean? and But it is not something that I am in a rush to watch because it, it just wasn't presented to me in a way uh, that was ironic enough where it was just like, I really want to watch that. You know what I mean? 
It was like yeah, this movie right. rules. This movie rules, and I idolize like McLean. You know what I mean? And it's fucking epic. Like you know what I mean? Like that's how I like saw it, or like or interpreted like mm-hmm. the way it was presented to me. So I was like, I'm definitely not in a rush. But I re- but I, we'll get to this later. But I really enjoyed it. I was like, oh, if someone was just like, oh, this movie is so campy and so funny, and it's just like a like like a cheesy action film, I would have been like, oh yeah, I should watch it. You know what I mean? It is so. I was I was absolutely like busting a dang gut the whole time. <laughs> like ask Tavis. Like I was like losing my mind. <laughs> laughing. Yeah, I, absolutely <laughs> laughing. Tavis, have you, you, you you've seen this before? Go sorry, go on. Oh yeah, I was just going to address something that Michelle said, which is, have you ever seen Starship Troopers? Yes. Yes. Or uh, RoboCop. I'm specifically talking to Michelle. So, so those are sort of, so those are sort of in the same vein where you were talking about like, oh, you have this like uber masculine character, except if you actually watch those movies, they're not what they appear to be upfront. Like they are about something and they have like this commentary that's like very much like against what you think the movie's actually about. So I feel like in that way, it's sort of like, it's sort of a perception thing and like how that movie was like presented to you yeah you know at the jump because like die hard's not the movie that you think it is yeah and those and yeah, similarly it's a like christmas those, movie yeah exactly in all in all seriousness though i do think die hard's one of those movies where it's like it is definitely an action movie but it's also a buddy cop movie and it's also a movie that has so much emotion behind it that only continues throughout its you know two hours that you go oh like there's a lot. There is a lot more to this than I thought it would be because it's, it's, I think it's relatively ridiculous. I think this movie is ridiculous, and for the '80s, there's so much. Like we all know that John McClane should have been dead within ten minutes of this movie, and no this building, uh, he, oh, like this building, should have also fallen to the ground. But like it, I don't know this aspect of like love between obviously the the, the you know John McClane and his wife, and the the, the mission of the villains and. And like this, this relationship was like budding romance that I'm going to call between the sergeant and John McClane. I thought was, I don't know. It just had, this movie has so many more layers to it. Watching it as an adult that I that completely flew over my head. Watching it as a, as a as a kid, it's so funny to watch now because like it's so pro cop in a really specific way. Pure propaganda. propaganda. Yeah. Cause like, cause the the character of I think like the deputy chief of the LAPD of I forget LA's finest being like so laughably incompetent, and then like the FBI guy going like full full metal jacket like in the cop. Wait, which one? It's it's funny you say that because I actually kind of read that as like anti cop. No, that's what I'm saying. So so that so like those those people being like not competent you know what I mean it's just like I'm like is this movie freaking a cab vibes and then two seconds but then two seconds later I'm like oh wait like the the person that they glorify is like this freaking like they don't even specify like what McLean does like he's not special ops he's like a beat he it's him and the guy from family matters or who are like beat cops you know what I mean that they act like there are these freaking special agents who are like tactical experts and then one of them literally like was so dumb that they shot a kid <laughs> also everything so, they do no. is either like pure luck or just at, like absurdly reckless yeah and it's just so funny because they're the, the he's like crying and he's like you know 
as a police officer, they'll teach you everything but how to live with a mistake. And I'm like, the funny thing is, is that you didn't get enough hours of training to not shoot a child with a ray gun. That's whoa, what they whoa, didn't wait, teach wait, you. But he, hold on, hold the phone. Don't shit on Reginald Bell Johnson's character. I am with it. I'm with the idea. Listen, I ra- I rather a guy. I mean, he's first of all, he's a sergeant. Like he moved up the ranks. So I think that's like I think that's interesting. But it isn't just the idea that this it's like this random new cop who shot a kid. It's someone who's been on the streets for quite some time, assumably. You're but not I, making I, you're I, not I, making a case for him, Trey. Cops now who have been on the force forever shooting kids shooting kids unapologetic, unapologetically. Like, they don't care. He was like, I'm going to take myself from the streets and I'm going to ride this desk because yeah, I, I did like, something I, that I, I can't that. imagine. Yeah. Yeah, no, but, so. the thing, but the way I read it was, it was just like, oh, I'm glad he has remorse about it. You know what I mean? And he like can't get over it. But I also just think that that was like a really distinctly pro-cop moment where, because I think it was like, oh, all cops feel this way. And like, it was just, and it was just like, just... I made a mistake. You know what I mean? As opposed to like there, but at the end of the day, like that, there there were no charges pressed against that man for taking a life. He, his punishment was moving to a desk job where he couldn't, you know, he couldn't take down terrorists in the Nakatomi building, (laughs) you know, unless like, unless by stroke of luck, you know what I mean? Like there was no actual retribution. There's no critique of the system there you know what i mean in a productive way it just this this specific character had remorse like a normal human being so like i think that goes to show like our low bar for cops where we were like oh wow this man regrets taking a child's life in this way you know what i mean and that's not dragging you trey that's just like i don't think that that is like a particularly exciting interpretation of a cop or a critical view you know what i mean or something we needed to see when it was just like oh a cop being a normal human being and being self-reflective and understanding the like the power that they have and hold you know what i mean that should be the standard and, and I don't, and I, I don't, I and I don't think that we say. It, I, I don't think that this movie says like this should be the standard. I think it was just like this is a very sweet cop. <laughs> I think, I, I, and, and he is. He is a very sweet cop. I, I do think. I, I think it, like this conversation only comes up to serve a couple of purposes, right? Like very, very lightly, but to serve a purpose at the end of him actually being able to shoot a guy with a gun for some reason. Because I agree with you. I, I don't think this needed to be a part of the story. But but because it is, I, I think it was brought up in the idea of, and correct me if I'm wrong, any one of you, but I think when that story was being told, it was it was John McClane saying something like, like, why are you here? Like, why are you the one who came here? And him saying, I, I, I wouldn't have been here. I was going home. Not only was I going home, I'm never on the streets. This is not something that I would typically do. And and I think I think for a cop, talking about like cop cop pride, I hate that. I hate that I'm putting those two words together, but it's like the, the, pride. the pride of being a cop. Uh, the, the pride of being a cop was being on the streets. Like being behind a desk meant that you were lesser than any other cop. Any other uniform was like n- meaningless if you aren't on the streets patrolling. And, and again, I, correct me if I'm wrong. I think he, like he said he put himself behind a desk. It wasn't. It was not a statement to like because he did this awful thing that that he. Like his punishment was to ride the desk. It was like, I'm going to do the worst thing that I can do and take myself off the streets and be considered lesser than for, you know, than any other uniform cop. And, and again, we're, we're talking interpretations and splitting of hairs here, but. 
I love that it's the first thing we talk about is the, the political nature of Reginald yeah, Bell Johnson. Yeah, I know. It's, it's interesting. This is, why, this is why you didn't bring me on into any other episode. No, <laughs> no Michelle, I love that you're here. So it's... Go on. Give me six hours. It's interesting because you kind of have to take it within the context that the film was made. Obviously, this film wasn't made in 2020. If it was, I, that would not be a plot point at all. But the, I, th- I think the general idea of it is that everyone redeems themselves and transform themselves from their past, right? So, like, Bruce Willis's character messed up his relationship with his wife and by the end of it he gets her back like that's that's a simple sort of thing and then for mr winslow it's you know (laughs) he was like i'm never gonna fire a gun again i'm you know not gonna do any of this and then you know the end of the movie he's the one who kills the last terrorist because he finally finds the strength to fire his gun again so it's 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 like you you kind of just have to take it at least for me i just take it in stride of just like it is written as a movie to make people feel good. And like contextually, those were not things on most people's minds back then. I mean, it is still LA, which is an interesting choice, but and like LA is like militarized police force and everything. So, I mean, that that's still sort of a contextual thing, but I think if you just look at it as like, Oh, he, it's sort of his redemption arc. It, it does make a little bit of sense. And I get that it's hard to ignore like, the cop aspects of that but i'm i'm also curious to to know and i guess we'll never really know is like how much of that is because we live in the year 2020 and we're watching this movie in the year 2020 you know what i mean oh i i i uh i read something on the wiki that was about it says captain character was the guy who played the captain right and roger ebert said he's an example of useless and dumb characters that prevented the film from succeeding and I, I, going back to how many layers this movie has and going back to like the Johnson and Johnson, the FBI agents, I, I think, I think we need those characters because I think there are a lot of ways this film could have been over in 20 minutes or less. Right. But, but I think we, like we need, we need, we need this captain character holding, I think his name was Al. I, I, I keep, I, I want to call him Mr. Winslow as well. Hold on. Sorry. One second. Yeah, it is Al. Yeah, so, Al he, so he, so he, He's the guy. He's the guy holding Al back from being able to run this whole operation smoothly from the outside. So I, I kind of look at him, look at him, and the, even FBI agents as being this like tertiary villain character, like the antagonist. So we have because let's be honest, we have Hans Gruber, and I think at one point it's mentioned that it was twelve other people or eleven other people in this building. First of all, Hans, like this movie is is great because. John McClane has to fight or get through 12 different people. But then he also has to fight the people that should be on his side with only a glimmer of hope from Al, who is at least trying to understand what's happening at the very beginning of this film. Yeah, again, I, just talking about layered. Uh, layered, and I mean, and, yeah, so that that's actually the, the reason that this is one of my favorite action movies is that you get to intimately know every single one of the terrorists. They're not just like... You know, you're not mowing through 50 dudes with a machine gun, which I'm pretty sure happens in like the last Die Hard movie I've never seen, but I can almost guarantee that that happens. Like there's just faceless (laughs) bad guys where one shot with a handgun is going to put them down. You know what I mean? Like, whereas these guys, you know, he, every time he encounters one, it's like a boss fight in a video game. Like they're taking punches, they're taking multiple bullets. He doesn't defeat them in like 
the same way every time. Like they're very unique. And then within themselves, they have these individual story arcs. Like, so for example, he kills the brother. I think he kills him first. And then his brother's name, I think is like Carl. And then Carl has to like, it changes his mindset within the terrorist to say like, you know, it's not really about the mission for me anymore. It's about like finding Bruce Willis and specifically killing him now. And so that changes his mindset. So it's just all sort of really interesting because it's more intimate. It's like, you have these 12 dudes and when you kill one of the dudes, it's a big deal. It's not just, you know, it doesn't happen in two shots. Like it, you know, the camera shots and it literally spans the entire thing and you get to know them and you get to see their faces and, you know, you're like looking forward to like when the next sort of encounter is like candy bar guy. The guy who's just snacking. Yeah, like <laughs> he's like, I'm gonna guard this post, but let me get a let me get a crunch real quick. He was, he was the most realistic <laughs> part of the whole movie. I thought it was really funny. I mean, I, I, clearly there was a uniform choice with these goons because everyone had long hair. Yeah, <laughs> that's the way it was in Germany, right? But yeah, these German terrorists were the most diverse German terrorists in all <laughs> of the land. <laughs> and even Hans Gruber oh. himself is a fantastic. I don't. I hesitate to call him a villain. I don't know that he is I, I part of me feels like the villains are like the fbi guys or the the head of police or the chief of police or whatever like all those guys these guys were just kind of like not secondary but like they don't feel like the villains of the movie because hans gruber is so like smart and and they actually give him proper motivations and proper like intellect to do this thing you know what i mean I, I, I completely agree. I I completely blacked out. Let's talk about <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I I completely blacked out the instance, like the entire uh, scene in the middle where, in the middle towards the end, where Hans and John McClane meet. They meet, and I, and yeah. Having seen having seen this movie before, I'm like, what is happening? What is happening, like story wise, and what's going to happen? Because I actually I. I just forgot. I, I actually had no idea what was going to happen. And I thought, I thought, I thought Hans as a character was really, I thought it was smart. It, say what you want. I called it really smart to be able to pull up this unplanned character out of your butt and, and pretend to be one of the hostages. Like it makes sense to do, but I feel like it was done so convincingly that, that, you know, I, I think it's a testament to, I guess, Alan Rickman, of course, but it, it just felt so on the spot. Yet, yet our, our hero is like, I'm, I'm one step ahead of you on this. Like, I, I believe this for all about a split second before I figure out I, I need to, I need you to know that I, I figured you out. Um, you give him the gun. I was like, no, 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 wait. <laughs> I've seen this guy like climb down an elevator shaft. He's not going to give a random guy a gun. I, I still don't even know how he did it. Like, I, I feel like he cocked the gun and every, like, he definitely cocked the gun. I was like, I, I don't know what's going on. So I watched this movie twice yesterday and Whoa. I didn't once with Dan and once with Michelle. What? It was kind of an accident. Anyway, that's wow, not the, the truth comes out. <laughs> no, I mean, I, you were watching it and I was like, Oh, I'm having so much fun watching it. And then I was like, Oh man, I'm going to have to watch this again. But and then, then I'm actually over and he pretended not to even know what movie we were watching. <laughs> no, but I, I'm super glad I watched it again, especially for that scene because they actually, they show you, they show you, him like taking out the magazine, putting it back in, you know, cocking the gun. And if you watch that scene carefully, it's meant to show you that there's nothing in there, which you wouldn't catch the first time. But then the second time I was like, oh no, they they definitely show you that. 
Okay. Okay. I mean, listen, I am no no arms specialist, so I believe that there was nothing in there because I think even one of the lines is, "I wouldn't give you a loaded gun." Uh, but I think I think of all the faults that that Alan Rickman has as Hans Gruber, it's the fact that he doesn't check the gun. But and again, correct me if I'm wrong. Did he say he was a Forbes magazine writer? Or what, like, <laughs> no, there, there's a line I, in there where he said, I read about you in Forbes magazine. Oh, he didn't say, I, I, I heard I wrote about you. And OK, it was the accent. I apologize. I was like, whoa, what a transition to be an, a journalist. Actually, so that's a whole other aspect of the movie, which was the newscaster journalists. The journalists. Yo, yo. <laughs> yeah, go on. Go on. Break it down for us. I don't know. That was really. I mean, we're talking about villains. But it's just another villain, but it's also very like stupid. Yeah, and it's it's very eighties. Interview John McClane's kids by threat. Yeah, and he he gets them in trouble. Yeah, which I guess is a comment on the media. I don't know. I, I, love, I love the choice of the casting there because that's the guy who's like the bureaucrat in Ghostbusters. That's like. It's like, I'm shutting down this building. And then all the ghosts get unleashed on New York. Oh, so yeah. that guy is like the Wait. the dumb the dumb guy who unleashes chaos. <laughs> Plays this same character in other movies. Yeah. Hello, the principal from Breakfast Club <laughs> is the exact same character. And, um, and Bruce Willis is the exact same character in Die Harder. And Die Hardest. Shut up. Shut up. <laughs> I, I So... One of my notes, one of my notes, because Tavis and I talk about this so much about sequels, is like the the nomenclature for, I guess, for a series. And by far, this is either the best or worst naming conventions for any movie series. <laughs> Do they ever reference the title? No. no. Okay. Um, but I, I love, love that. I feel like... If you're going to die, feel- die hard. I mean, that's really the ethos <laughs> of this film, and they don't need to say it explicitly. And that's the sign of a great motion picture i feel like <laughs> just based on the fact that the fourth one came out in 2013 there's got to be a line where they say today's a good day to die hard I, they probably like, must be hard would have been there four, four. Uh, five four uh four only four uh, yeah they say yippee ki motherfucker five. in all of them is there five yeah. there's five uh, die hard and a good day to die hard first of all i will never refer to it as die hard too that's die harder well, it's Die Hard 2, Die Harder. Die Harder. I've watched the trailer for that one, and it's it it, it it's amazing. <laughs> it's, it's amazing um, in how... It takes place at Dulles, right? Say again? Yes, it, it, does. it does. Yeah. Wow, so, I've heard it multiple times. On Christmas Eve, the following year. So it's it's a one-year difference between Die Hard and Die Hard 2. Wow. I think he said. I think he actually says that in a film. What did you say, Dan? Yeah. Nothing? Okay. What? Oh, sorry. Wait, Franchise. I thought it was just a Christmas movie. No, no. Die Hard with a Vengeance is the first time we see John McClane back in New York. I don't know what happens in the second one, so, but I only imagine we get to see him back with his family in Die Hard with I a think, Vengeance. I think Die Hard 2 is ex- the exact same movie, but in D.C., because it's also on Christmas Eve. I, I, I just wish John McClane was like the lu- unluckiest Christmas guy. Yeah, that would be, that'd be great. Christmas. Wait, can we write that, guys? Can we write that? Can we write that? This movie? is the seventeenth year in a row. Let's <laughs> just write it. only on Christmas Eve. <laughs> the following year comes around. He's like, "Nope, turning off all electronics." <laughs> Ooh, have you ever Put seen? Have you ever seen "Live for Your Die Hard"? Which one is that one? It's the fourth one. It has it has Justin Long from 
the Apple yes. commercials, and literally the entire. <laughs> that's all I know him from. Apple commercials. That's, that's, that's all I remember his dumb face from. And literally the entire movie is about how Bruce Willis is an old man who doesn't understand technology, and Justin Long is like a quote badass like hacker Love guy. It. It's like it's two hours of John McClane being upset that he doesn't understand computers. I love that for him. I mean, it's they've got guns. <laughs> I feel like yeah, yeah. Literally, it's like he's frustrated. He can't solve any of the problems because it's all computer based. And then, like, I'm pretty sure at the end, it's like finally violence is the answer. So he just goes gun blazing and solves. I love everything. that. Shoots the movie because detours are always fun. Can I? Can I say? Can I say one thing that may be controversial? The score was incredible. Okay, it was purely variations on Ode to Joy. Exclusively. (laughs) If you didn't know, now you know. Just just listen to Die Hard and tell me it's not a Christmas movie. But but it did make me think, it did make me think of, of course, think about it in the context of of making films. It did make me think of, like, Us and Get Out, on how Jordan Peele would subvert a song that we all know and, like, for him, make it into, like, a, a horror or you know a suspenseful song. Now I am in no way saying oh, he did Joy. that. I think oh, so. But, well, yeah. it's the one song. So, but yeah, no, I mean, wait, I, I who said that? No, I said yeah. You're, but I might have said no, but I meant you're right. <laughs> oh, got it, got it, got it, got it. You I'm, meant the I, opposite. You meant the opposite. I see, I see, I see. My mistake, my mistake. Okay. Um, you meant, you meant the reaction? inverse. I didn't say that. Words, <laughs> words only have value that we assign them. No, I, I think I was saying no to Trey. No, he what? he actually no Trey. He meant yes. Right. <laughs> us, us is the one that he did that with. <laughs> yes, us. The other, the other two letter word. <laughs> other than no, I forgot what I was even saying. <laughs> you were talking about <laughs> sure. Yes, so just the idea that like there was there were these like suspenseful moments and like action ridden moments with music that had just jingle bells playing or like, you know, just like, again, just subverting like Ode to Joy and whatever the, the other scores that they had into something that was more festive. It just, it just, I don't know. It, it made me happy. It made me happy to know that we can subvert things like that. And, and again, add another layer because I, I do think this movie just has so many layers that it's, it's unfair that a movie that only took two hours and some change was able to tell such an uh, interesting story in, in that time. I mean, of course, I, I, I'm not here for a Lord of Rings-style movie, but I do think it's, 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 it's I know, I, you have to admire a film that is telling a lot of different storylines, even with, like, the, the news reporter that was completely needless. We didn't need that at all, other than the idea that someone went to go interview their kids. But even he, even that guy had this arc that resulted in him getting punched in the face in the end. So yeah, I thought music played a really big part in how I felt about the film. You know, talk about layers. There are so many story points that in any other action movie would just be pushed aside. Mm. But here they come back like 20 minutes later and you're like, Oh yeah, he's not wearing shoes. Cause the guy mentioned the thing offhanded about shoes. Right. 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 Yeah. Like yeah. Life picture frame on the desk. This is, um, Oh Yeah. A, a very, very, very good example of like if you want to be a screenwriter, this is I think this is like one of the scripts to look at because it is like quintessential like setup, payoff, setup, payoff, setup, payoff, and then there's yeah, like obviously the one big setup and payoff. Yeah, nothing is unused. It's very, very like 
I don't know if lean is the word, but like efficient in how it uses these devices. I, I, I completely agree. I was actually just looking up to see if that script is online, and it is. So we'll add it in the show notes. Just talking about scripts, it, th- like, so this movie is based on a novel, so it's an ad- adaptation. And apparently a lot, a lot of the stuff that we saw on screen was – I'm not – I, I, I don't know. I don't want to – no, but <laughs> I, I feel like I don't want to misquote and say improvised. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure if it was exactly improvised as much as it was like being written on the day and therefore okay. like just being thrown in. So that's that's something I noticed as well. Is is this is a movie that seemed like it was written on the fly only because like if you watch the way that the editing works and the way that they cut between these stories, they're segmented like location wise and character wise. They're segmented enough that you could lift parts out and the movie would still happen. Like it's it seems very like. They edited this not knowing where things were going yet. And then whatever the final product was is the final product. And then there's also just shots. Like when the police are pulling up to Nakatomi Plaza, like all of the police for the first time. There's just shots where it's just like, it looks like they planted a camera and then watched the cars roll in. Like it wasn't like a plan, like this is, you know, our shot. This is our framing because the camera will just pan to the other side of the road and get capture the other shots of the cars coming in. And it was like, it doesn't look like a DP set up that shot. It looks like they just planted the camera and we're like, all right, just get it. Just get it on the film. Mm. I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, especially, especially when the top with a, sorry, with the shot to that tank coming down the road, you would think that tank was at the very beginning, right next to that building. But suddenly like we spent about four minutes with the entire team going up elevators and preparing to shoot this tank down. Uh, and I was like, there's no way anyone from inside this building saw this tank coming off the highway exit and suddenly barreling its way towards Nakatomi Plaza. Right. The, the, uh, that first shot we saw. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, with such a dramatic entrance for that tank. And they're like, rolling out. This is our heavy gun. This is our last resort. And then it doesn't even make it up the staircase. Get stuck. Is the best thing I've ever seen in any act. A second time just to be safe. I was, was going to say that the, the first shot we see of that tank is, like, amongst the police. Like, it, it's passing Correct. by police. And then you're Correct. right. Like, we, we see them setting up the rocket launcher. And then when we cut back to the tank still coming, it's, like, down it's the still highway. Down so another thing. So Bruce Willis was on a TV show at the time. And I don't have it in front of me, so I forget what it was called. But he was on a TV show at the time. And he was doing the TV show and this film. And he went to the writers and said and said, I am going to kill myself because I'm just really exhausted by all the work that I'm doing. Please, essentially, please make sure, like, the other characters and actors... I'm not sure if he said this or the response was other characters and actors are going to to have more of a story and and take some of the pressure off Bruce Willis. Did I explain that? So, yeah, he he, he just felt like he was doing too much work. So in response to this, the other the other supporting actors got storyline which is probably why it feels like you could probably lift whole chunks out of it without without really messing with the structure of the film but in in a way i i appreciate that because like you said i don't think i don't think this movie would be made again today the way this is because like you said like like i don't i don't think people are still spraying that many bullets without hitting someone and i don't i don't think an executive would care for the way that so many, you know, supporting characters had these developed stories. Yeah. But in, in that same vein, I feel like it's only because that the movie sets your expectations at a certain point. 
like nowadays we just have these huge franchises like Fast and Furious where the first movie is all about car racing, but nowadays they're going into outer space and blowing up space aliens with their car guns. And, and it's, it's just, it's, it's with just their car guns. They literally have like, family. <laughs> they have like mini guns mounted to the top of their car. It's just so ridiculous. And like, the only reason that is, is because they're like, we have to up the ante. We have to up the ante. Like, you know, you're not going to get nine right. movies in and still want to see them race cars around, you know, I-95 or whatever. Like, but then you get to like Die Hard and it's like, no, it's it such your expectations way lower because there's only 12 dudes and that's all you get. And so like you have to ramp up from there, but you don't have to ramp up to, to outer space. Like you can keep it nice and compact. Right. And, and, and they did ramp up. Like, again, there was still there was still about like, you know, I think he killed three dudes before. Oh, before yeah. The police came. They still uh, level, before they, they still basically leveled the building. But like the way that you get there, you know what I mean? Like. No, I think it's insane, and, and I, I think you're absolutely right. I do think this is a movie that you that you should look at to be able to develop your characters and your story, and make it and make it something that is going to drive drive the action. Like your characters are meant to be driving the action, right? Like, like I, again, I, just to go back to it, I, I appreciate that Paul Gleason's character as the cop prevented our our lovable murderess, Sir Winslow, from from being able to communicate sufficiently with, with John McClane. I appreciate that this news reporter is out there outing, you know, this family out to the, the kidnappers. I also appreciate how my man Argyle, the limo driver, apparently had all of the time to make phone calls from within the limo on a car phone that would have been the most expensive phone call in the <laughs> world. Because my man was back there in his limo chilling. In his defense, Argyle. The second I saw Argyle, I said, "This is the protagonist of this film." He had he had a great day. I I, I don't know when he got clued into everything that was happening, but he came out. He came busting out of the garage, and he was like, "I'm here, guys." Uh, and John McClane's like, "No, no, bro. I was I've been here all night killing people, and you ain't do shit. Where you at?" Can Ridiculous. we talk about? Uh, way, um, go on. Can we talk about Alan Rickman? Yes, rest in peace. The whole I I also asked that we refer to Hans Gruber as Young Snape, but Y U N G Snape the whole time. I could not get over it. I was losing my mind. Like his first introduction when he walks in and is talking to the employees of Nakatomi Industries, <laughs> it like is is the beginning is the scene when he is in potions class in Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And he's like, and he's like, I'll teach you how to bewitch the mind and ensnare the senses. Like it's the same exact cadence and the same exact. Ooh, he's just like listing me. things that he does. It's so good. So what you're it's saying so is J.K. Funny. Rowling got the whole idea of Harry Potter from Die Hard because that tracks for me. Okay, I'm not saying that, but I'm not denying it either. Okay. <laughs> a lot of parallels there because Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone also loosely considered a Christmas movie. That's a Christmas movie for, I, for sure. Isn't there just one Christmas movie? Is it really? Movie, right? nah, I mean, so yes, but the, the spirit of it is so heavy that it permeates the entire rest of the movie. Wow. And it also is like, it's always on uh, 25 Days of Christmas on ABC Family. Right? It is. It's always like a Yo, Are they still? I feel like it's before baby. Okay, well, yeah. And yeah, that's yeah. canon. And that's canon. <laughs> uh, this is Alan Rickman's first. Really? 
Tinseltown, yeah. baby. Because before that, yeah. he was just like straight theater. Yep. Um, she was talking like that in real life. I actually took. I actually went ahead and uh, took the liberty of pulling up the screenplay of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. If you'd like me to read the opening speech from Potions Club, oh, yeah. oh, if you if you can read three lines with a German accent, uh, we'll all judge you on this, and then yeah, go on. No, he, it's not really a German accent. It's more just he is Snape. <laughs> <laughs> then I'll just watch the movie. Uh, <laughs> okay, fuck off. Yo, listen up. Let's. I, listen, there's tons to talk about on this on this movie. But before we before we officially wrap up, do you guys have any other any other things you wanted to discuss quickly? Uh, that helicopter exploding was the wildest thing I've ever seen. What the fu- one of the funniest jokes was when that guy was like, "This is just like Nam," and then the other guy behind him, oh, yeah. like, I was in middle was school. Like- you, I was like, "This is hysterical." <laughs> I was like losing my mind. He was this like just is, like Saigon. This movie is, this movie is so funny. <laughs> I I really was, and I I think McLean is like not the funny character. Everyone else is so funny. Also, everyone who's about to die had some witty statement before they got got. Like everyone yeah. was like, "Well, I guess that's that's Christmas for that's you." That's show business. Yeah. <laughs> okay, you know what? Also, you know what? Death was more satisfying than any of the terrorist deaths. Was Alice. was Wait, who? We, we all think that, that that guy was actually on coke, right? Yeah. Oh yeah, me and Dan were having this discussion oh. last night. I was like, his performance oh, guy. when he was actually doing the performance. I think he was actually doing coke. I yeah, I wanted maybe. to it I was, wanted to murder it him. Was the and that, that sounds right. Um, it was it was honestly a, like it was fucking cathartic. I was like, there are so <laughs> many like finance bros that I want that I know would just be doing coke like in a hostage situation, and be like, I got this. and be like, I fucking <laughs> He was like, I, I negotiate know. for breakfast. <laughs> I thought he would be the guy. I thought he would actually be the guy to out the relationship and he wasn't and i thought that was really fun he, that he wasn't the guy to out he kind of no he, he even was said he that though? he was john mcclain's guest or yeah he, he said oh yeah they're like that's john mcclain so he didn't know that that miss Gennaro was his wife miss mm-hmm. Gennaro. but he but once he had john mcclain's name it was easy enough to tell you know what i mean so it indirectly right. was kind of him I also like how this whole movie hinged on him being angry that his wife didn't have his last name. It was like it was just really funny because like at the beginning of the movie, I was like, "Tavis, this is bad. I hate John McClane because I I like also wait his name is way too close to John McCain for me to like him. <laughs> also, but also when he was like t- yelling at his wife, being like, "You are my wife," blah blah blah. When she was like, "It's better for me to like be a single woman because I do business in Japan," and she's like trying to advocate for herself, like this really logical reason that has absolutely nothing to do with him. And he's just like, "But you're my fucking wife," and this is how like marriage should look. Meanwhile, he's very clearly checking out other women, like very clearly cheated on her, like way more of a violation of like, you know what I mean, of what it means to be in a marriage than changing I mean, your last but- name for your for like career purposes when it when she's fully committed to like their partnership and he's not i was like i fucking hate this and then it takes her like almost dying for him to be like i think i'm into just you (laughs) you can keep your name if you want i mean i don't think the the predicament was that he cheated on her though i thought that was kind of implied that he was like a little bit of a scumbag i thought no no i I see the the thing that I pulled away was just the idea that, like, this was his estranged wife, but they'd only been away from each other for six months. 
like so, which is a considerable amount of time but they live about it, like in today's terms so I, it's to me it seemed like the backstory was like she got this like huge career move and he was not supportive he didn't want to move he was like i don't want to yeah. move i don't want to do this and she was like i need to do my career and he was like not supportive of it because when he gets on that call with carl winslow he's like he's like tell my wife i'm sorry for like not doing you know all you know being more supportive of your career and blah 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 it didn't seem like his the thing was like he cheated on her Wow. I thought there. I honestly thought that that there was subtext there because one, I prob I feel like he probably felt a little bit emasculated, which is probably really um, hard for him because he is obviously like so old school you know what I mean and John Wayne vibes when she had this big career move and like made this decision and he was by himself and like there were so many very there were very deliberate shots of him making eye contact with the flight attendant looking at the poster of the naked girl and then using it as a strategy later or whatever to mark the floor and like and I think there was him exchanging looks with like another woman too like i think yeah, like, he probably yeah he probably felt like threatened his masculinity felt threatened and then his eyes wandered and then she also made made the the statement of like yeah i have a pretty good idea idea of what you want our marriage to look like or like what you think marriage should look like john which mm-hmm. i think the subtext of was that like you can do whatever you want and i can't interesting so that was my interpretation. I, yeah, but, you know, that. that's my, maybe that's me projecting. And I don't have trust issues. <laughs> that's me projecting um, my belief that. On that great note, because it is, it is Michelle against us at all times. Listen, let's, let's wrap it up. Michelle, Michelle, um, the question for everyone is, is this required watching? And as the first time Raider, Raider, whatever, go on. You, you, you let us know. You start us off. I think that this is a required Christmas watch. Wait, are are you hold on, are you are you saying it's only a Christmas watch? It's a required Christmas watch? Or like, I have okay. two different questions here. Wait <laughs> Okay, I like number one, is this a Christmas movie? Number two, is this required watching? Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna answer this. I'm gonna um avoid answering the question directly as I usually do. You could say that it's Wow. Um, oh I like it. I like it. I would say that except fucking A cab, babe. <laughs> so I think that this is not required watching generally, but it is required watching for people who love camp and comedy. And it is required watch for people who love Christmas and want to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior. Really enjoy it. I think uh, thank you for having me watch this though because I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Like I was literally like losing my mind laughing at how good this was. And it's just Michelle, so funny. You have you have to come back and we watch you have to suggest a movie for us to watch, that's for sure. Fuck. Wait. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh wait, on another it. episode. I thought it. you were like you're picking yeah, yeah, the yeah. next one right now. And I was like, <laughs> I was not I was like I was not prepped for this. Uh, <laughs> actually, I have one on deck I feel like Michelle would really enjoy. Name Go. names. It's a movie I personally love, Trey. I think you know this about me. I absolutely, and this is not a joke, I love this movie, is Tremors. Let's do it. I feel That's like a, I feel it's like a fantastic like a new movie. Tremors. Oh. The, the fun of Tremors isn't the story. It's the fact that it's just Kevin Bacon out in like the middle of nowhere. <laughs> like that's, that's the appeal of it. it. It has nothing to do with the actual premise. Tyler, give us your take on this film, please. All right, so uh, yes, first of all, this is a Christmas movie, absolutely. There's uh, there's just no way around it. It gets it ends with Let It Snow. It takes place at the Christmas party. <laughs> there's 
like 20 different Christmas references. He's, he dresses someone up as Santa and says, ho, ho, ho. Like, it is just a Christmas movie. And then also, I would say that this is required watching. Because like I was saying before, the writing is actually really smart. It's pretty textbook. So if you wanted to study that kind of thing, this is a perfect example of like screenwriting, screenwriting processes. Also editing, like you can see the editing process and how the movie was written, like sort of on the fly. And as you go, I think that if you're interested in like acting careers, like there's really cheesy acting, but you can kind of see like Alan Rickman, Alan Rickman's performance is great. If you want to follow Bruce Willis, I think this was his jump to movies as well from TV. Yep. I don't know. There's just, there's just a a lot about this to love from like the terrorists and like the terrorists, like, you know, writing characters without writing for characters, like not without writing their dialogue, you get a good sense of who these guys are and what, you know, that they have these like interpersonal connections. They have these like lives beyond just being faceless terrorists. No one does anything particularly dumb. There's no like dumb moment to me. I mean, maybe aside from like the newscaster people, but it, everything seems calculated. Everything seems efficient. Hans Gruber is a great villain. And so, yeah, I would say that this is 100% required. Word. Hit us with it, Dan. Well, I don't think, I don't see how anyone could say it's not a Christmas movie. This is not a Christmas movie. You're one sick fuck. <laughs> He's clearly an allegory to Jesus Christ. Oh, it, it is, yeah, with the feet. If you drop all oh, the feet. <laughs> that's like a big thing. Like, that's a big thing about this movie. Oh, yeah, I I would not it's, be able to do half that stuff with shoes on, let alone barefooted. Yeah, there's like a lot of Jesus imagery and like Bible imagery. Yeah, damn. I'm gonna say <laughs> 100% Christmas movie. Freaking damn. I'm going to say required. It's a yeah. pinnacle 80s flick. Second only to Con Air. I know. But it does feel like a smart action movie. Like Tavis was saying, everything is intentional. So, mm. yeah, I would say required. Damn. Definitely a Christmas movie. Definitely, definitely a Christmas movie. I, no, no question. You guys already said it. Uh, I absolutely think it's required watching. I, 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 I am going to agree with Michelle and its camp and its, its ridiculousness in that it is an 80s movie. I, like, I think if you saw this in the 80s, you're like, this is the coolest thing ever. But watching it now, you're like, like, calm down. However, I, I, I do think just the straight up storytelling aspect of it all is something that should be thought of in any screenwriter's mind at, at all times. And I, I, re- I really don't say that as a joke. I, I do think that I do. I do think it has it has John McClane as its main, you know, its hero. But it has so many characters that do so much to bring the story to its completion that I. I have no, like, no characters wasted. Like there is not a character on the screen besides maybe that 30 extras that are hostages. There's not a character on this screen that doesn't serve a purpose. Any person talking essentially ser- is serving a purpose to get us from like, to get us to the next point. And that is something so rare. And I, I like, for example, I love the like superhero movies that we have today and I, I am not shitting on them, but we, we talk about, uh, like the fantastic nature of it all and has, how it has to go from like saving the earth. But, oh no, like we have to go back in time to save the earth. Oh no. You know, like we, we, we try every way to, to make the stakes higher, but 
Nakatomi Plaza was taken over by 12 people and was only made worse by the intervention of cops. Like, it, like it, it, what, like that, that kind of story just doesn't exist. Well, it probably does, but you know what I mean? Like, it, it just didn't make it any easier to have this one guy face up against 12 people than have a, essentially a police department who just wasn't on his side for just one guy on the outside. We didn't talk about Reginald Bell Johnson's meeting Bruce Willis, which I thought was was why I thought it was a buddy cop movie towards the end because they made that introduction so dreamy, like you know, like we would typically do with uh, a woman coming in, like showing her breasts or whatever. Like it was almost like slow motion, slow motion, you know, angel horns leading the way. That I thought it was just great to ha- at the end of the day have these two guys who, you know, came together to try to stop this big thing happening. Sorry, tangent, but yes, required watching. But before we go. Guys, thanks so much for listening, and thank all of you for joining us on this special December day. You can find Required Watching at Required Watch on social medias, both Instagram and Twitter. And you can find me, Trey Epps, at Trey Epps on Instagram and Twitter. How about Michelle? Go first. You can find me on Instagram at Robot Noises, and you can find me at my um, natal Twitter at... Mishi B, so that's M-E-E-S-H-I-B-E-E for more piping hot takes. Oh. oh. I'm so sorry, Dan. I'm so sorry. Disrespect. <laughs> Dan, go first. Don't endorse me on LinkedIn. You can find me at Tavis Northam on Instagram. All right, Dan. Dan, go ahead. Oh, I made a mistake. Con Air came out in 97, not in the 80s. I apologize to the listeners. Wow. 20-year uh, difference. I'm at Danny Taverner on everything. Awesome. Again, that's our show. I'm so happy that you guys were here. Like, we have not gotten a chance to talk about required watching 1.0, as Dan puts it. But I'm, I'm so happy that we've come together for a bit of a reunion. And I hope this isn't the last because you guys are fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for having Woo-hoo. us. Merry Christmas. Merry and happy-